ברוכים הבאים, ברוכים הבאים בשם השם, ברוכים השם dedicated to Nachum Yaakov, Tzi Hirsh, Shalom, and Bashar Achana, Shalom, Basar Avram, Badalachayim Tev, Maruchim. I had occasion this week to, um, I'll say, benefit from Facebook, which I don't have. <laughs> One of my children has Facebook. And someone posted randomly, <coughs> a minion was needed for a levaya, for a funeral, um, going out to Wellwood, which is quite far, an hour and a quarter, hour and a half. And um, it was a Holocaust survivor with nobody, nobody in his family, no family members left. Unfortunately, he had two daughters that both passed away from the illness, shall we call it. And um, he had nobody. So they were literally physically looking for a minion to go out to the basic forest. And then in a second post, this person posted, they're looking for somebody to say Kaddish for him for the year. So... Um, <laughs> I said, my daughter posted this on our family group and the uh, whatever. So I said, okay, I would undertake to say the Kaddish. And um, so here I am with a mitzvah, another mitzvah. I'm saying Kaddish for a few people, unfortunately. But here I am, I married to another mitzvah to say Kaddish for this fellow, a 99-year-old man who apparently was a very nice guy. Very, people were very fond of him, people liked him, had a good reputation. But unfortunately, after surviving the Holocaust, he's survived by no one, apparently. So, I said, no problem, I would definitely do the mitzvah, undertaking the same Kaddish for him in his memory. And... Um, his neshama should bless us all. Unfortunately, at the moment, the family did not give yet, she could not get, this woman cannot yet get the actual name of his father. So they gave me Mayor Ben Sigmund. Sure, Sigmund had a better name than Sigmund. And we'll do all of Shalom, and his Nishama should also have an Aliyah. And should, I'm sure, meeting all the merits and all the family members that were killed in the Holocaust that are waiting for him there in Gan Eden. 99 years on this world. Very powerful. And we're dealing with a Pasha this week of Pasha's Vayechi, which deals with the passing of Yaakov Avinu, although Vayechi refers to the life of Yaakov Avinu. So we need to understand how that works. Also this week is Pasha's Chazak. Chazak, Chazak, when it's Chazak of Shehomish Bereshis, which also has a major significance. Kaddish. Since I opened and told us about Kaddish, Kaddish obviously said for a neshama. A soul, a person passes away, Kaddish is recited. And it's for the neshama, for the actual soul, as Kaddish is recited. And it helps elevate the neshama on a daily on a on a daily basis. Each each time Kaddish has said, hundred fifty years ago in Pressburg, Germany, was a very rich Jew, factory owner, very kind, took care of his wife and children. He had three daughters, and he gave tzedakah. Unfortunately, at the prime of his life. He suffered a fatal heart attack and everything was left to his wife. 
the whole, the whole business, everything was left to his wife, and she had to manage the business. And she did so. Unfortunately, because she only had three daughters, and none were yet married even, and Kaddish needed to be said, she employed, she went to the yeshiva, local yeshiva, and she went to the yeshiva and said, she will pay somebody to say Kaddish for her husband. The year passed, 11 months of Kaddish, and this woman felt that it was an interesting mitzvah to see to it that those people don't have someone saying Kaddish for them, to say Kaddish. And whenever she would see a funeral going by, in those days the town, everybody saw the funeral going, she would inquire. And if there was no one to say Kaddish, she would go to the yeshiva and she'd pay the Rosh Yeshiva, someone should say Kaddish for this and this person. I've told this story before, but since we're talking about Kaddish already, I think it's important to show the significance of Kaddish. And she would go each time to the Rosh Hashiva and she would pay for someone to say mourner's Kaddish for the 11 months. And this went on for many years. Unfortunately, one time, at one point in time, her finances took a turn to the worse and she was devastated. She was wiped out. She had to declare bankruptcy. She took one of her, of her last savings and she ran to the yeshiva to pay for one more Kaddish. And then the last time she went in, she told the yeshiva, listen, I don't have money right now, but hopefully things will get better and I'll come and I'll pay you for it. But th- there was another person I needed to say Kaddish for her. And he agreed. Unfortunately, things only got worse. And it turned into a veritable nightmare. But as she was going out of the yeshiva, and she really was dreading going out to the public anymore because the creditors were after everybody was after her. She was despondent. She was walking in the street. She was walking out with a very, very drawn face with a heavy heart and this well dressed man out of nowhere an elderly man approaches her and says tell me my daughter what's wrong you look very depressed and for some reason (laughs) although she never met the man had no idea who he was felt compelled to unburden herself on this man and to tell him her woes to tell him what had happened he heard her out and he said tell me how much do you need to pull yourself out of this financial rut She laughed to herself because now already she saw that she doesn't even know why she spoke to this guy. She doesn't know who he is. Now all of a sudden he's, he's digging where he doesn't belong. She told him about 15,000 marks. He says, okay. You know what? Just, it's a, thank you very much for inquiring. Thank you for asking. It was very kind of you. The guy like but as she's walking away, he says, wait, wait, one second, one second. He said, 15,000 marks? He says, yes. He reaches into his pocket and he's taking out his checkbook. He says, please wait. And she looks at him. He's going to give her a check? How much could he possibly give her? But he's reaching out and he does, she doesn't want to upset him. And he leans on something and he writes out a check for 20,000 marks. He says, if 15,000 is what you really need, 20 will give you, just get you over the hump. She was shocked. He signs the check, and then he says, wait a minute, you know what? It's a lot of money. 
people are not necessarily going to believe you that there's a real check. Let's go into the yeshiva. Uh, we're right here outside the yeshiva. Let's go into the yeshiva. And we'll get two witnesses to attest. I'll show them my ID. And they'll attest that this is a real signature. This I really wrote this check. And they go into the yeshiva. And there was two bakram still sitting there. It was lunchtime, actually. But there was two bakram still sitting there. The uh, masmidim, shall we call them. And he tells them the story. He says, I'm giving her a check, 20,000 marks, 20 whatever it is, and I want you to witness. This is my identification. I want you to witness that I'm signing this check today to her. Please sign in the back that you witnessed that you seen me sign this. And they do so. And he says, okay, you can go to the bank quickly because, you know, the bank's almost closed. And she runs to the bank to uh, place deposit in her account. The teller sees this amount of money, such a large amount, she refers it to the bank manager. She goes to the bank manager and she presents him the check. The bank manager looks at the check and starts to sweat. He starts to tremble. He's, he's in shock. And she says to him, something wrong? I mean, I'll show you, there was witnesses that signed to this that said that this check is real. That it's valid. And he looks and he says, he sees two signatures. He says, could you perhaps bring me the witnesses? Can you bring me the witnesses here? And she runs to the yeshiva and she finds the two bakram. And they come back and they tell him, and he asks, what, what did this man actually look like? And they describe exactly what the man looked like. And it was indeed the man that signed this check. The bank, te- the bank manager is, is, is trembling. So what's wrong? The man you're describing that signed this check passed away four years ago. Says it was my father. And last night, he came to me in a dream. And he reprimanded me. And he told me that because you decided not to follow the path of our fathers, and you did not keep the religious way, when I passed away four years ago, you didn't say Kaddish. However, the person that arranged my Kaddish and paid for my Kaddish is going to come visit you tomorrow. I want you to make sure you take care of her. And this was the check that was signed, was signed by this person that was deceased from four years earlier. And he saw to it that this woman who paid for his Kaddish four years earlier was now compensated with everything she needed. Now, the story sounds like one of these come on rabbi stories. Give me a name. Put a name to the story. The story was told by the grandson of Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnenfeld, the Rav of Yerushalayim. His grandfather, Rabbi Yosef Chaim, was one of the signatures, one of the witnesses. Shia Grunwald, who was the Rav Rashi of the Hungarian communities, was the other signature. 
So the story actually comes with names. Very powerful. The power of Kaddish. So the mayor, Ben Sigmund, and hopefully I will achieve for his neshama by saying Kaddish for the 11 months. But speaking of people dying, we know there's a rule. You don't bury a tzaddik next to a rasha. That's also a famous story of Yosel the Ganef and the Shpolazeda. Shpolazeda chose a certain lot, plot. Where he should be buried. He ended up next to Yosel the Ganef. Without telling that story now. We see in this week's Pasha though, Yaakov Avinu asks for a guarantee from his children, from Yasef. Do not bury me in Egypt. But you know something? It takes a lot to gain somebody's trust. And after you gain the person's trust, you first start thinking about how can I trust them. Yasef HaTzadik was known as Yasef HaTzadik. All references made to him Talk to about Ruvain, you talk about Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar. When it comes to Yosef, people refer to him as Yosef Atzadik. Like when you say Yaakov Avinu, you say Yosef Atzadik. He sent to his father, as we said last week, agolis, wagons, and this confirmed with his father. That he was firm and steadfast in the terror that his father taught him. He was reminding his father the last halacha, the last law that we studied together was that of Egla Rufa. And therefore, he sent Agolis. We said this last week. His father asked him, he brings the children that Yaakov should bench them, and Ephraim, and Yaakov asks him, Who are they? And he answers, They're my children that came, Bozeh. Rashi says, what's Bozeh? Yosef shows Yaakov the Tanoim and the Ksuba that was written with his marriage. Yosef did not go off Kihuzeh. This is another reason they didn't recognize him because they couldn't believe. How is it possible that he held strong all these years? We're going to discuss this soon, Mitchell. Yet, Yaakov, in the recesses deep down in his heart, has a major concern. And he starts to tell Yasef HaTzadik, his dear son, whom he never gave up hope on, who 22 years he mourned for him. And he starts to tell him, 
Your mother, Rachel, 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 Imenu, passed away. B'derech Ephrosa, on the way to Ephros, he based Lochem. What does it mean, based Lochem? It's Ephros or it's based Lochem. So Mepharshim tell us, based Lochem was an explanation as to why he buried her there. Based Lochem means the house of bread. House of bread, base lachem, base lachem. When I tell you a house of bread, what do you think? What comes to your mind? A hotel, a restaurant, a food store. Definitely not a cemetery. Yaakov said, I buried her there. Why? Because this was a base lachem letfila. This was a hotel of prayers. And when the Jews are going to go down to Bavel, they're going to be going past here, and they're going to pray here, etc. Yosef himself knows that when he went down to Egypt, it was being sold, he too passed there. Okay, bakery. I left our bakery? <laughs> Thanks. So it was Beis Lachem It was a house of, sub, of sustenance for prayer. And that's why, says Yaakov, I didn't bury her in Hebron, in the Maras HaMachpelah, together with me, but rather I buried her there. Why is Yaakov going through this whole description now? What is he leading up to? He tells him again now at this point, but don't bury me in Egypt. Don't take revenge. Yesef Atzadik could have said very simply, Father, the Jews are going to be now in Egypt, they're going to be in exile. They're going to be tortured. They need a place where they can go to cry out their hearts. They need a place to go to pray, a caver, an oil. Let me bury you here in Egypt so the Jews can come to your resting place to Daven. So in essence, when Yaakov says about Rachel Imenu, that he buries her in Beis Lachem so that the Jews would have a place to pray, he wasn't making himself a better case. Adraba, he was giving Yosef more cause to bury him in Egypt. And therefore he was very concerned. How can he possibly gain Yosef's trust impeccably, inequivocably, equivocally, to make sure that Yosef is going to bury him in Maris HaMachpelah and not in Egypt? And this was a strong concern, and he makes him swear that he'll do so. So what happens? Yaakov passes. Yaakov is eulogized. Yaakov is given a tahara. Yaakov is taken to Hebron. And after all said, none is the Gemara in Tainus, Yaakov lay mace. Yaakov did not die. Just like his children continue his legacy in Torah and mitzvahs, therefore he remains alive within them. We're going to discuss that as well. Let us take to the story what happens. Esav heard that Yaakov passed. Esav comes running. It's my plot. 
I'm the firstborn. I want this plot. The whole funeral procession is standing there, waiting to bury him, but Esau is protesting. And they didn't have the documentation that Esau sold everything to Yaakov. It was in Egypt. Says the Madrash Naftali was very light-footed, and he was sent to speed off to Egypt to get the papers and to bring them back. In the interim, little Chushim, Dan's son Chushim, was deaf. And he comes forth in the line and he says, What's going on? Why are we not burying? Why are we not, what are we waiting for? What is delaying the Leviah? Chirba Kedisha is going to get in charge overtime. So, they tell him the story. That Esau is making trouble. How do they tell him? Sign language, obviously. How do they talk to him till then? Remind me to tell you about Helen Keller. Not during this year. Um... Says the Medrash, Chushim takes a stick and decapitates Esav. Makes him a head shorter. And his head rolls in to the caver. It landed on Yitzchak's, I don't know, his lap or next to him. It's in his grave. So says the Targum Yenison Ben We have a major question here. It's a din, ain't kevrim Russia Eitzel Tzadik. We don't bury a Russia next to a Tzadik. If you're keeping score at home, it's a Gemara and Sanhedrin and Memzayin Amaralev. 47 side 1. And in So how is it Esav's head lands and gets buried next to Yitzchak? Let us understand Esav. Esav ultimately is the son of Yitzchak. As was Yishmoel the son of Avraham. But unlike Yishmoel, who was born to Hagar, Esav was actually born to Yitzchak's wife, Rivka. You got the Sanhedrin? Here he goes. He's got Sanhedrin. You want again? It's on 47, side 1. Memzayin Amaralev. So Esav was the son of Yitzchak and Rivka. So what was Esav's Shadish? Where was his Shadish? Where was his roots from? From Yitzchak. It was his father. <coughs> Yitzchak was a tzaddik. There was no wickedness, there was no evil in Yitzchak. He was a Korban So the fact that Esau was a Rasha, he severed himself from his root, which was Yitzchak. And he involved himself with physical, mundane life. What involved itself in the mundane life? The physical? His body. His mundane, the mundaneness of Esau, was wicked. His head was from the Shadish, was from the Makar, was the source. And that came from Yitzchak, which was only good. And therefore, once the head got severed from the body, 
it no longer was connected to the Russia, to the wickedness, and the head therefore was allowed to be buried next to the tzaddik. We can ask for forgiveness always. We need to always ask. We are constantly asking for forgiveness from Hashem Yisbarech and from our fellow man or woman. We live a life. We're always doing something that could possibly insult, hurt, upset somebody. And therefore, it's never enough apologizing there is never enough time to apologize. And no matter how much we apologize, it is so, so hard for the human being's heart to be able to be like God and to forgive. Let me take you to a scenario. 1941, 42, immediately after the war, a DP camp in Germany. They had taken one of the barracks, of the concentration camp, and converted it to a shul. The senior member, the most prestigious member of this congregation was the Admiral Klosenberg, Klosenberger Rebbe. Klosenberger Rebbe and Achman al lost during the war a wife and 11 children. But, a man of stature, a holy neshama, He led the congregation. Yom Kippur at night. Everyone in that room, broken vessels, with a determination, most of them, to start from the fresh to rebuild, to avenge the blood that was spilled. Finally the Chazan starts to call Nidre. And the tears are flowing and the shoulders are shaking and trembling from crying. And they're davening. And as they come to the part of Shemanese, where they need to say al asking for forgiveness for the sins I committed with my hands, the sins I committed with my feet, the sins I committed with my eyes. If I was haughty, if I raised up my eyes, if I was selfish, etc. And each one you bang. I sinned before you with this. Suddenly one of the men bursts out screaming, No! 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 Everybody's frozen. And everybody here is from different walks of life. You have people that were chassidim, People that were totally, totally unreligious. They were unaffiliated. They'd never been to shul before. But here they came, this Yom Kippur night. And this man is screaming, No, 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 he will not say al My hands did not sin. My eyes did not sin. I did not raise up my ego. Who has to say al God has to say al He let the Nazis' hands sin and kill us. He let their eyes look at us. He let them raise up their heads above us. Let him say the Al-Khayt. We do not sin. We did not sin. 
place was frozen. The words were penetrating. And everybody felt the same way. And everybody looked to the Klosenberger, to the Rebbe. What would he respond? And he told the man, You're right. You're right. Everyone here is pure. But my son, I will tell you why I am saying al khait I will tell you why I feel I need to do teshuva. In my barracks, the barbarians had a game they used to play every morning. They lined us all up and they chose random five people. And they would give them a pile of bricks and they would make them carry up a flight of stairs. We weren't people, we were broken skeletons. A pile of bricks to walk four feet, two feet, to carry them up a flight of stairs. And they would watch the five people do it, and if they dropped one of the bricks, they would add two bricks. And if they themselves collapsed, they would torture them and beat them to death in front of us. This was their morning activity. Not that the rest of the day was any more pleasant, mind you. But this went on every morning. Every night, after the torturous day that we went through, we said Shema Yisrael, and everybody added a little prayer. Rebbeinu Shalom, I don't want to be one of those five people tomorrow. Rebbeinu Shalom, let me die in my sleep peacefully. Rather that I should be subjected to that painful, besides the humiliation, the painful physical painful task I ask you let me die in my sleep in peace I too says the Kloisenberger said that prayer I too asked to be relieved from my physical body not to be subjected to this horrific horrific humiliation. However, it was an incorrect prayer. The correct prayer should be, Rebbeinu Shalom, set us free. Let us out of this horrific, horrific exile. Set us free. Take us to Yerushalayim Irakadosh. The word freedom didn't exist in our dictionaries. Didn't exist in our minds. I was not even a tangible thing to fathom. So I too sinned by not asking to be freed, but rather asking to die. And for this, said the Kleisenberger, I pray for this I daven and I say al that I be forgiven for the fact that I did not pray for redemption but I rather prayed for death. Yaakov Avinu Yaakov wanted to reveal the Ketz, the end days when Mashiach will come. But says Rashi, the Shekhinah leaves him, 
and therefore he is not able to disclose. And he gives each Shevet, each one of his children, a bracha. Which is the beginning, <coughs> begins today's Chitas and finishes tomorrow. Layasa Shevet mi Yehuda, Mechekik mi Bein Raglavad, Kiyove Shiloi, Veloi Has Amin. The Balaturim, who was written, which was written, a Pirish on the whole Teda in one night. The Balaturim writes, Yavai Shilai. The words Yavai Shilai have a numerical value, which is known in Hebrew as a gematria. Yavai Shilai is gematria Mashiach. Shilai be gematria Mashiach. The Balaturim, therefore, referring to the coming of Mashiach as Mashiach. Let us delve into what the Balaturim refers to. There's a Maimar Azal, the Shmeis Rabba. Meisha Hugayarishen Hugayel Achrin. Meisha is the first Redeemer and he will be the last. Now it definitely cannot possibly mean that Meisha will be Mashiach. Mashiach the Gayel Tzedek. Because we know the Mashiach comes from Beis David. And Beis David is from Yehuda. And Meshach was from Shevet Levi. But the Medrash is clearly stating that Gula Hasida, the future redemption, may it come speedily today, will come through the Kayach of the Gaelrishan of Meshach. What was the Koyach of Mashiach? What is the Koyach of Mashiach? How will he be able to redeem the Jews? Only from the Koyach of Torah. Which Torah is the main attribute of Mashiach. Like we find the Rambam. is the first thing he talks about in Hilchus Malachim. What's the first attribute of Mashiach? Hei he is very careful in his Torah. And what is Torah? Torah is referred to as Torah's Moshe. So therefore we find that the strength of the girl Achrein, of the ultimate Redeemer, is to redeem the Jews with the, with the strength that's empowered with him from the girl Rishon, from Moshe Rabbeinu, which is Torah's Moshe. So this is what the Balaturim is implying. Yavai Shilai is Gematria Mashiach. Shilai is Gematria Mesha. How can it become a redemption? How can it become a revelation of Mashiach? When Yavai Shilai, how will it become the revelation of Yavai Shilai? Through the strength of Shilai of Mesha Rabbeinu, of the concept of Torah. Not to leave you without something quickly to say about the Shabbos table this week. We said before the Shabbos Chazak. We have time yet for, for where we're going yet. But I wanted to say this word. The Chazak of the Parsha of the Chumash says, Vayamas Yesef, Quickly. Right here. Thank you very much. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm looking for. Bayamos Yosef. How elusive can it get? Ben you're right.
Why is it referred to him again as Vayamas Yosef Mevesim Shalom? Rash and Mefarshim tell us that this is what leads into the next next parsha actually, which is Shemais, and also leads into Natschilasim b'seifim b'seifim b'tschilasim. Yosef died in Egypt. Yosef was given a name. Tzofnas Paneach by Pare. So generally, on the normal basis, he should have carried that name, Tzofnas Paneach. Tells us the tale of Ayomas Yosef. Not Tzofnas Paneach died, Yosef died. He kept his name. And this is the beginning of the tale as well. It starts off, Bereshis Paralekim. What happens, the first thing is, first actual deed that takes place by person is that other magician is empowered to name all the creation, to give a name. And therefore, the name is what the essence of the creation is. And so too here, Yasef is telling us how the importance of his name, that he he bore his Hebrew name at all times. And although he lived in Egypt so many years, and although the king himself gave him an Egyptian name, who dies? Yosef dies. Not Safnas Paneach, or any other names that he might have been given, but Yosef itself, he remains with the name Yosef. And therefore a very powerful lesson to us all is that one needs to always go and learn and live according to their Hebrew name. Why Yosef? Taylor tells us, Navi, the Davar Melech tells us, Yosef. The chain of Yosef, the sheep of Yosef. And the Nevuah of Geula is given at the end of the Pasha of the name in the mouth of Yosef. Where Yosef finishes off, like we just said, The Almighty will take you out. Shem will remember you and take you out. Dafka Yosef says this Nevoah lets us hear that Yosef is the one that is directly connected to the Geula. The Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim more than any of his father and his brothers. Yosef's action, the way he served God also finds it that way. The others, the forefathers and the Shvatim were all shepherds. Why shepherds? Because this gave them all the leisure time to practice Teda, to learn Teda, study Teda and practice mitzvahs. And they weren't exposed to the elements of the world. Yosef was a Mishnah Melech Mitzrayim. He was in the most mundane position, in the most horrific atmosphere. And he involved himself still with the kingship of the country, Ervasaret, but yet remained steadfast. And therefore he was in a higher level than any of his brothers, even his father. Let us understand what is the actual essence of this level of Yosef. And the way he serves God. And why through him is given the notification of redemption. The truth is that the differences of service between Yasef and his brothers comes from the roots of their neshama. As we said, Yaakov and the Shvatim were shepherds. They were afraid to involve themselves in anything else. They were afraid to involve themselves in anything that's going to take away from their terror. They also did not want to be exposed to the world. Yosef, however, 
was involved in world, worldly matters. Worldly matters that took a lot of effort. He was the second in command to the king. He was totally entrenched in the financial financials and everything else. And still in all, he kept himself above, beyond anything around him, his surroundings, and not only remained loyal and royal, but rather he remained pure. Yaakov, you know, dealt with only very, very high level spiritual things. And because of his Kedusha, the Vedan Kedusha, his physical concepts, his physical Kedusha, bringing Kedusha into the world was a little more difficult. Yasef, who was more of a worldly person, was connected more to worldly issues. Therefore, tell this Yaakov, Yasef, when it says the children of Yaakov, who is the children of Yaakov? Tell this Yaakov. It says Yasef. Because the revelation that came <coughs> into the world from Yaakov came through Yosef. And that's because the highest falls to the lowest. All the Dargis of Kedusha from the highest level, come down to the lowest things in this world, lowest mundane. You take a torch, it'll light up to distance. The greater the torch, the more the light, the further the light. Even to the furthest point, it'll light up the furthest point. And this is a Kedusha that was so high of Yasef's Neshama. And because of the height of his Neshama, therefore it was able to come down into the lowest of low, into the, even to Ervas Aretz and Mitzrayim. But Yaakov, you know, blesses each and every one of his children, each one with a different way. Even Shimon and Levi, he blesses them with a little bit of disdain, actually. Kibat Mharguish. Who is the Ish? Who do they kill with their anger? Chamer and Shishchem. And they all said Ish. They killed the whole city, the whole town. But they considered Ish. Wonder why? Because Shimon and Levi were very, very strong. They could have wiped everybody out in one shot. But they didn't. They went and tricked them. They deceived them. They made a brismila and everything else. When they were weak on the third day, that's when they went and killed them. Yaakov says there was no reason for that. This was all premeditated. It was ba'apam. You didn't need to do it with anger. You didn't need to do it out of such a premeditation. You needed to do it swiftly. One, two, three. And show the world what kind of kayak you are. So the blessings that Yaakov gives, each one of them is disguised. And each one of them has a point and an arrow and a mission and a source. The famous Balshemtov story, which I believe I've told already, a fellow, very, very wealthy fellow, a chassid of Balshemtov, came to Balshemtov constantly for blessings. But he was a very happy fellow because he had everything, lacked nothing. And he would basically come just for the Hashem to say, you know, to get a bracha, go weiter. The unfortunately thing that he did lack was children. He had no children, And each time he would come to the Hashem, he was supposed to ask for a bracha for children, but he felt that he was so thankful for everything that he had, he didn't want to ask. Finally his wife told him, don't come home without a bracha for children. I can't go on anymore, I can't live anymore. And he comes to the Vashemtav, took him almost a week to get there. When he gets to Vashemtav, 
he pours out his heart, he needs a blessing for children. And the Tov closes his eyes, and goes into the meditation, and finally tells him, I can't. I can't give you a blessing for children. And he breaks down and he starts to cry and he begs and pleads and he says, finally the Tov tells him, I'll tell you the truth. Person is entitled, some people are entitled to only two of the three. Health, wealth and children. Some people are only entitled to two. Health and wealth or health and children, whatever it might be. You are blessed only with these two, health and wealth. But children, unfortunately, you can't have. So the man says, so the Balshanta tells him, if you give up your wealth, you can be blessed with children. No. man says, in, I'm done, I'm, I'm ready, sign me up. Huh. And he says, um, what about your wife? He says, my wife agreed. She already told me, whatever it takes, do it. Well, Hashem said, okay. And you're blessed with children. I give you a blessing for children. No, he comes home and his wife is sitting there wringing her hands. And she's crying, she's devastated. And she says to him that it's the winter time and our team went out to cut the logs to be sold. And all of a sudden, before they could do anything, before they could mark the logs, there was a heat wave in the middle of the winter, and everything melted, and all the logs flowed down the hill, down the river, and we lost everything. And there was a fire in the factory, and the machine, everything is wiped out. We wiped out. We are destroyed. And he starts to dance, and to sing, and to jet. <coughs> she says, "What's that? What, what happened? Are you cracking up?" And he says, "No, the bracha of the Bashemtiv." He said, we lose our wealth, but we're going to have children. She hears this, and she too danced. We'll make the story a little quicker, because the end of the year. And they were blessed with ten children. However, they lost their house, and they were living in little boxes, literally. Crates. They made into makeshift rooms on the outskirts of the town. He was reduced to literally begging. Came one day, and the Vashemtav came to visit the town. Everybody came to the shul to see the Vashemtav, to get a bracha, to hear words of wisdom. He also came and he stood in the corner in the back, and finally the Vashemtav calls to him, Zalmanu, come here. And he tells him, In Minsk, there's better picking. You can get better, you can collect more money there. Go to Minsk. And you'll see the tide will change. And he travels to Minsk and he comes to a fellow and a rich man invites him for Shabbos and a holy Nikosamaisa. And the rich man didn't have had children that needed to marry off. But each time something else happened. And he says, Come with me to the Bashemta. They traveled to the Bashemta and they told the Bashemta the story. And the Bashemta gave a bracha. And as soon as they came back, the daughter was ready getting married, ready to get married because a long story how it happened. Bashem told the man though when you get back and your daughter's gonna get married, make sure you pay him Shat Khanut and matchmaking fee. And he says, Don't worry about it. Anyway, comes the time for the wedding, and a Bashemtav shows up at the wedding. And he pulls the man aside and he says, Did you pay Shat Khanut? He says, Yes, how much? Five thousand rubles. He says, Come on. So I'll give him ten. No, 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 no. I'll give him twenty. He says, No. So how much are you worth to Bashem Tavest? He says, about 3 million ruble. He says, you give him half. He says, Rebbe, half? So he tells him, tell me something. Were you always a rich man? He says, no. I was actually a poor man. I was collecting money also. And one day I was standing by the river, and a log came down the river. 
And it was unmarked, so it was Hefke. I took it and I sold it. I made some money. And the next day a bunch of logs came rolling down the river. So I took all those logs and I started selling and I became very, very wealthy. And then there was a factory that burned down that had machinery, so I took the machinery. <coughs> and that's how I became so wealthy. Bashanta says, these are his logs. These are his machinery. He gave them up for a blessing for children. Now it's time to pay him back. And so, he paid back his half, and they both became wealthy, and they both remained wealthy, and he remained with his children. And we see how a bracha is directed to where the person has to get it. And may we all be blessed with such a bracha. The bracha amitiz vashlema, the main bracha of Gula, of Melech HaMashiach, Meshach Yavai Shilai, before the Shabbos, before even we daven tomorrow morning, Shachris, before we say Krishna Shalamita tonight, and we all find ourselves in Yerushalayim, Irak Kodesh, with Mishtoyach Zimkenu, Shabbat Shalom to all.